Recently, I was reading an article from the American Psychological Association entitled, Recent Generations Focus More on Fame and Money Than Giving Back. My son, who's going to be 23 next month, uh, always hates when I talk about generalizations about millennials, of which he is one. Uh, but there's just uh, inc an incredible amount of research out there to show how not only generations act differently, but the forces that shape those generations have a great deal to do with why generations act differently. And there are a couple different things this morning that I think point us to a fascinating phenomenon amongst those who were born in the 1980s and 90s. I, I read from the APA article, the times are changing and not necessarily for the better when it comes to giving back to society. According to 40 years of research on 9 million young adults, since the baby boomer generation, there has been a significant decline among young Americans in political participation, concern for others, and interest in saving the environment. This is according to this study published in 2012 by the American Psychological Association. I quote from the, from the, from the study, popular views of the millennial generation born in the 1980s and 90s as more caring, community-oriented, and politically engaged than previous generations are largely incorrect, particularly when compared to baby boomers and Gen Xers of the same age, says Jean Twenge, a psychology professor at San Diego State University and author of the book Generation Me. These data show that recent generations are less likely to embrace community, community-mindedness, and are focusing more on money, image, and fame. Now, this came out in 2012, and you might say, well, five years ago. Things have certainly changed, haven't they? Earlier this year, according to a recent report by the social media network Clap It, which was reported on Complex.com, this was, the title of this article was, Millennials are willing to disown their families to be famous, study says. And this is a, a real thing. Uh, a quarter of millennials would quit their day jobs to become a celebrity. This is, of course, not too surprising when you consider the paycheck of the average celebrity. What is shocking, though, is one out of 12 millennials would disown their family to become a household name. Think of the irony of that. You would deny your household to become a household name. The study, which was done in partnership with the firm YouGov, also found out that one in 10 millennials would sacrifice his or her education for fame. One out of nine would give up marriage, and one out of six would forego having kids, all to be famous. 27% would move to another country for the spotlight, and one in 14 would break up with his or her significant others just so that they could be known. It's interesting, there, there was a day when you were famous for being great at something, and nowadays, because of the forces in our culture, namely social media, but the internet and all these other things that are a part of the world in which 80s and 90s children are, are growing up and grew up in, uh, now you can be considered great for just being famous. Uh, we continue our series, The Gospel in Real Life, today with a look at the gospel and greatness. And there may not be another city in America let alone the world, so focused on personal greatness than Los Angeles. There is, for 
us a real challenge to not adopt the mindset of our world which says in order to feel good about who I am, in order to know that I'm valuable in this world, I have to be great, particularly by other people's standards. People come to Hollywood from all over the world to pursue their dreams, and most never achieve greatness. There's one statistic that said it's easier to win the lottery than it is to become a movie star, and yet people come here all the time and gamble their young life away just for the hope that one day they'll be famous. And in fact, when you get to that level that might be considered great, the people I know in the biz will tell you that often they, they move the goalposts. What I mean by that is that, say you were an actor and then you become a working actor, and then you think that's terrific, I make $80,000 a year acting, this is my dream come true, then all of a sudden it's, well, are you a starring actor? Or are you a feature film actor? Are you a headliner? Now, that which was a really great accomplishment for you, the culture is now shifting, and you have to feel almost like you've lost just because you're an average actor. It's so easy to have that mentality grab onto us. And according to Tony Hale, who's an Emmy, winning, uh, Emmy award-winning actor and a friend of some folks in our church, fame is paradoxically a lonely place. The one who longs for fame imagines that being known by the masses will make them feel a greater sense of love. However, the masses don't really know you and often are just trying to use you for some ends of their own. As a result, famous people often isolate themselves for their own protection, which in turn shrinks the circle of people in their lives. And the result is fewer people actually know them and love them. The voices of American evangelical Christianity aren't far behind this cultural trend toward seeking worldly greatness to define its methods and its accomplishments. In American, Western, Christian, evangelical, biblical, gospel-centered Christianity, that's a mouthful, uh, great often equals great big. Great equals great big. Otherwise, so-called Christian periodicals wouldn't produce annual lists of things like the fastest growing and largest churches in America. You know, young pastors in our current generation are immediately drawn to this definition of great. Who wouldn't be? It's easy to focus on numbers instead of the content of our character. We, we look at the spread of our influence. Incidentally, until Brooks arrived in 2013, Prism was regularly competing for the less coveted honor of slowest growing church in America. So, now I had the fastest growing pastoral waistline in America, so you win some, you lose some. You know, you got to give and take. It's all about that. I, I do think, though, it's important as we look at this passage in Mark to us to draw a very pointed conclusion as much as we may love the country in which we live, American greatness is not the same as Christian greatness. And I want to take a look at why that is. Four different thoughts from Mark chapter 10. If you'll walk with me through this passage, the first of these thoughts would be this. Our selfish nature craves our own greatness. And yes, the black background for this particular slide is intentional. It's intended to metaphorically speak to the darkness of our soul. 
Seriously, our selfish nature is something that craves being the great one. And you see this in this remarkably bold request of two of Jesus' closest confidants. Verse 35 of Mark 10, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said, to, which I think is an amazing thing, I'd like you, Jesus, to do whatever I want you to do for me. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Now, in a world where you're, you, know, you have a, a, a king you know, and you have a monarchy, the people who got to sit to the right and left in the throne room These were the power players, the right-hand women, the right-hand men. These were people of substantial authority, and they knew that they ruled over lots of folks. And you see this narrative played out in the Old Testament, even with figures like Moses or Joseph. They got to play these right-hand man roles, and it gave them tremendous influence and power and, and wealth. And so what James and John are actually asking is, like some of these Old Testament heroes of ours, we want to be like vice kings, vice president. Put us in a role. We want want to be top dogs. And Jesus' response to them is unbelievably patient. Now, it causes me to ask the question, what what is it deep within us, all of us, that gravitates towards the boldness of asking God to let me be honored. Let me be the one seen. The late Dr. Henry Nouwen, a Catholic priest and scholar who left his Ivy League job to live among the severely handicapped, noticed this appetite in himself. And one of the things he once pondered was, he said he found himself speaking to thousands of people about humility, and at the same time wondering how highly they were thinking of him. Think of that, the irony of it all. Dr. Larry Crabb confessed something similar, that when he was doing the eulogy for his brother who died tragically in a plane crash, he began to wonder, right in the middle of his message, I wonder if people think I sound really great right now. Are people impressed with my eloquence? You see, since the fall of mankind, and now this is the moment theologically when we ceased abiding in the presence of God because of our sinful nature. Since that moment, we've longed for the glory we once shared, which was being in the presence of God unencumbered by a distance, a space, let alone our brokenness. There was no separation between us and God. Yet at the same time, it was our desire for glory that ultimately led our first parents astray. Satan tempted Adam and Eve with the notion that if we disobeyed God and ate from the tree of of the knowledge of good and evil, we would in fact be like him. So we were offered the opportunity to be thought of as great. See, we're hardwired to enjoy glory, and in particular, God's glory, but we then have seen it warped and twisted into our own attempts to rob God 
and claim a glory for ourselves. We often forget that we are created beings, crafted by God, gifted by God, continually protected by God. And when we forget who and whose we are, we foolishly try to make our life's work and relationships about our own glory. American culture describes our pursuit of greater greatness as upward mobility. Jesus has something else in mind for us, as we see from today's text, something Henry Nouwen famously called downward mobility. He said, quote, This is the way of downward mobility, the descending way of Jesus. It is the way toward the poor, the suffering, the marginal, the prisoners, the refugees, the lonely, the hungry, the dying, the tortured, the homeless, toward all who ask for compassion. What do they have for, to offer? Not success, popularity, or power, but the joy and peace of the children of God. This summer is the ninth anniversary of me moving my family to California to be a pastor. And I have to confess to you, as I have on occasion, that what was initially driving me to come to California to pastor a small church that was planted and was somewhat on its last leg was not to be one who would serve and care for people and reach the culture. What was driving me was a deep-seated hope that if I succeeded here in Los Angeles, that I would be thought of more highly by my ministry peers. It's a terrible motivation for doing pastoral work. And God used circumstances to break me of a lifelong pattern of depending on what other people thought of me to find joy, meaning, purpose, significance. He had something very different planned for my experience, and I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful that he redirected my life and my heart and has given me the privilege to be here with you all. And I didn't consider that God had something very different than my own ego. And that's how deeply rooted some of this is in all of us. And you see this, actually, as we continue making our way through Mark chapter 10. You see another aspect of the darkness of our soul, and that is that our proud nature assumes our own greatness. There's an arrogance that assumes we're destined for that, or we should be destined for that, or we just misjudge how gifted we really may be. And Jesus says to them in Mark 10, 38 through 40, you don't know what you are asking. That's a significant statement, you know, because Jesus is basically saying, fool, I mean, he, he's basically saying, you're, you have no idea what you're asking for. You're, there's a foolishness to this. And anybody who's had a small child that tried to act like they were older than they really were and had a perspective that was larger and more informed than it was knows exactly what Jesus is experiencing. And fortunately for these disciples, he was much more patient than many of us parents have been as we've dealt with children who needed to be corrected about how little they actually knew. Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking. So he poses this question to them. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. 
In other words, you're going to suffer, that's for sure. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. James and John assumed they knew the kingdom of agenda of Jesus. They, they figured they had a pretty good bead on life. And when asked if they could suffer, as Jesus metaphorically used, drink the cup and be baptized as ways of expressing the lot that he was given, the mission that he was given to suffer in our place, to die for us, he asked them, are you able, figuratively speaking, to, to die? Are you willing to suffer? They assumed they knew what he was talking about. They foolishly said, sure, we can handle whatever you throw our way. Their quick response indicates a high level of both ignorance and pride. I think all of us at one time or another can look back on our lives and go, I can't believe I was as foolish as I was. As Tim Keller once said, you know, you're always looking back 10 years and saying, gosh, I was a real fool back then, which means that right now we're being a fool and we don't even know it. We won't know until 10 years roll off. James and John respond with arrogance. And this is an arrogance that was on display Earlier in this very same chapter of the Gospel of Mark, we didn't read it today, but I, I do want to share with you the story because Jesus is dealing with this everywhere he goes. In Mark 10, 17 through 20, it says, As Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. The response of this young guy, teacher, all of these I've kept since my youth. <laughs> really? Jesus tells you, here are the commands, and your response to that is, I've been perfectly holy since I've been a kid. Imagine the hubris. Jesus, actually very compassionately in the rest of this, passage would demonstrate to this young man through his greed and his love for money that he hadn't perfectly obeyed anything. You see, in our foolishness and craving for our own greatness, we think too much of ourselves and our own capacities. Jesus was clear that as a branch cannot produce fruit if it's disconnected from the vine, believers can do nothing apart from him apart from walking with him, apart from depending on him, apart from basing our entire existence on being his children and that satisfying our souls. Our proud desire to be able to do so apart from him, anything apart from him, is an incorrect assumption about our own greatness. And then the passage is even going to show us how this is often evidenced in our lives. As is the case with James and John and the other disciples. And that is that our competitive nature hates others' greatness. So in addition to our proud nature assuming our own greatness, when other people get great around us, it threatens us. It makes us feel insecure. It makes us want to do away with this person who makes us feel smaller. I, I love this passage, and Jesus is amazing because he's so patient. And I think we all should take that to heart on those days when we're feeling like we're not making all that much progress in imitating him. 
Mark 10, 41 through 42. And when the ten, these are the other disciples, heard about James and John's question, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So right away you see Jesus is saying, I'm going to make a clear difference in the definition of what great is. And the first part of this, this comparison and contrast is to say, in the world in which you live, in the world where the, the word of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the life of Christian, the life of community, where, where that doesn't rule and reign your life, in that world, the Gentile world, you are great if you have authority and power and you rule over people. Jesus is setting us up for a definition that is in direct opposition to that. The definition of his definition of greatness is the other way around. And he says to them, this is the case. Now, most commentators agree that the other ten disciples who were angry with James and John were not mad because they had offended the Lord's holiness but because they didn't get there first. I mean, to a commentator, most of them would say that it's evidenced by other passages of scriptures, but these guys are upset because James and John had the nerve to ask the the Lord a question that they hadn't gotten around to asking him yet. And in Mark, I mean, sorry, in Luke chapter 9, you actually see this ongoing debate amongst the disciples. Read with me. Verse 46 of Luke 9, an argument arose among these disciples as to which of them was the greatest. So understand this, they're sitting around with the creator of the universe and they're arguing about who's the greatest. I thought that was pretty much evident that Jesus was the greatest, but amongst them, they're going to go around and say, okay, who's number two? I mean, that's sort of an embarrassing conversation to have, but Jesus knowing the reasoning of their hearts, which is scary, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. Do you see these disciples? They're like clinging to this. Hey, aren't we the power group? Aren't we the ones that are close to you? I saw a guy out there and he's not part of the group and he was doing something for you and I told him to stop and he's not one of us. I mean, this is like middle school, isn't it? I mean, this is like terrible. I'm like, what are you talking about? Somebody's out there trying to do something for Jesus and you're like, you're not part of our in crowd. I mean, this is, what's, this is the equivalent of what's going on in this world. The Apostle John, the other disciples, fighting for an honor, competitively hating the fact that others might be infringing upon their idolatrous turf of being the most important one. This is what I find truly amazing, that these apostles were in the presence of the one through whom they were created, seeing him perform miracles and hearing him teach, yet they continued to have their selfish nature exposed at one level this is encouraging because this is true for all of us too god patiently brings us along in our sanctification which we defined last week as a continuing change by god in us 
freeing us from sinful habits and forming in us Christ-like affections, dispositions, and virtues. But thank the Lord that he graciously, bit by bit, shows us just how broken we are. Because if he did that all at once, it would be too much for us to bear. Nevertheless, the, the competitive, selfish nature of the disciples is on full display. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis had this to say about pride and competitiveness. The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It is because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I am so annoyed at someone else being the big noise. Now what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature. While the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. I've got a truckload of relatives, nephews especially, and I have two that I've always been, you know, I had a really soft heart for. Uh, and here's a picture of them at earliest in life and, and most recently. Uh, that's Trevor and Drew Mays, my sister Mary Lynn's uh, boys. Uh, when they were little, they were so adorable. And then, of course, they're older now, and they're very studly and military and still adorable, apparently, to the ladies. And so, uh, but uh, this is a picture of uh, Trevor and Drew at Drew's graduation from Navy SEAL BUDS training. My nephew is a Navy SEAL. And what I found great about Drew, the Navy SEAL, is not that he made it through SEAL training or that he could snap my spine with his pinky or that he could shoot a fly between the eyes at 100 yards or that he's brave enough to enthusiastically put his life on the line for his country. What makes me proud of him, ironically, is how he fights to serve and promote and build up his fellow SEAL mates. What makes me proud to call him a family member is that being one of the very few Christians in his outfit, he's in a soul battle to remember that God is the one who made him big and tall and smart and tough and athletic, not to mention top gun, good looking. You know, there's a reason why it's difficult to be an elite fighting machine and a Christian at the same time, and that's because the culture of greatness, the testosterone-filled, look-at-me world, compels you to put yourself first, to depend on yourself, to actually brag about yourself, to defeat your opponent, to stand over them and talk trash. I love my nephew because... He hears Jesus calling him to something else. And that's true for all of us, regardless of our vocation, whether you're a Navy SEAL or whether you're a nanny. doesn't matter. It's, it's about Jesus being exalted. And this is really where we transition from three parts of our nature to something very exciting. And metaphorically speaking, in front of you, we go from black side to bright orange and life. Our renewed nature finds greatness in our humility. That's where we find greatness now. This new nature that we have, this one that is being shaped, sanctified by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, this new nature, this renewed nature 
finds greatness as Jesus found greatness. Verse 43, Jesus says on the second half of his compare and contrast, the Gentiles do it this way, not so among you. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is where the gospel and real life intersect. Jesus is talking to people who have experienced him, and that's presumably us. He's giving a new command to those who have been touched by his humility, and if you call yourself a Christian, that's presumably you. He's calling those who claim to be his followers to imitate his greatness, a greatness that is found in service and sacrifice. This is the secret to life that Jesus was sharing when he said there's more joy in giving than receiving. This is what Jesus was saying when he said that you will find him when you serve the least of these. Because whatever we do for them, we do for him. This is where we literally get to experience a new level of grace and an exciting entrance into the presence of Jesus because as we help those who need us to put them first. And it may not be the homeless people out here in Pasadena. It might be your relative. It might be your spouse. It might be somebody who you feel like they're just take, take, take. And you go, you know what? This is where I'm going to discover Jesus in sacrificing, in giving. This is where we plumb, we plumb new depths of experience with Christ. It's in knowing and experiencing Him. I love quoting Rick Warren because uh, a lot of my like ultra-reformed friends have problems with Rick Warren, and I think he's great. So uh, uh, this is something he said on this subject that I thought was just amazing. And he's a mega-pastor, just so you're clear that I don't have anything wrong with mega-pastors. The world defines greatness in terms of power, possessions, prestige, and position. If you can demand service from others, you've arrived. In our self-serving culture with its me-first mentality, acting like a servant is not a popular concept. Jesus, however, measured greatness in terms of service, not status. God determines your greatness by how many people you serve, not how many people serve you. You don't have to look past today's headlines to see that power over others is the definition of greatness, at least in our American political culture. When our president says he wants to make America great again, let me just say from a biblical standpoint, that would mean we're going to be the servants of the world, putting everyone else's needs ahead of our own. Just in case you were wondering what it meant biblically. For the sake of unity in the church and love for my Republican brothers and sisters who are among us today, I'll not speculate on what lies at the heart of our current president. But what I can tell you is this. If Americans want to be great in a biblical sense, we're going to have to be people who give our lives for others as Jesus did. This is what will make us great. Why? Because as has been the case in each of the areas we've studied in this, the Gospel in Real Life series, in each area, we've discovered that if 
we imitate Christ, he is seen. When we conduct ourselves like servants instead of strong men, Jesus is glorified. He's the one who receives honor. He's the one who is seen as great. The Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 3, 9 and 10, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Jesus has called you and I to allow his spirit to empower us, to change us, to transform us, and not so that we can get him to love us, but so that we can honor him and so that people can look at us and see him. Today, perhaps you'd come to the communion table, which is emblematic of what Christ has done for us. His broken body sacrificed a servant to all. His blood spilled to show that he has come not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. So you'd come to this communion table today, perhaps, to confess your sins and turn from your self-glorifying, self-honoring compulsions to be great compared to others. And in so doing, I can promise you this because it's scriptural. You will find greater joy and greater life in giving and humbly serving than you ever would from keeping and taking. There is greater joy in having people say to you, not what a great servant of God you are, but instead, what a great God you serve. Let's pray to that end this morning, shall we? Dear Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for <laughs> how slowly you're willing to walk through our sanctification because we would never be able to believe that you loved us if we had to see just how broken we were, head to toe, inside and out. I would pray today, though, that we would take instead great comfort in your patience and your kindness, and that it would lead us to repentance, as your word has said it does. And that turning would be a turning away from uh, looking to others or taking from others in order to feel great, but instead finding our life and giving ourselves to you, giving ourselves to others for you, and then experiencing you in that moment. Lord, we're thankful that you are especially gracious to those who are in a place of feeling very vulnerable. Your word has said that a bruised reed you won't break. And so I pray today that not condemnation or pressure would be heard, but a, but a gentle call that you'd make to some soul today to believe you, that there's more joy in making others important than trying to force themselves to be seen that way. Oh Lord, forgive us for those times where we have not looked to you, but looked to our own attempts at greatness to fill our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name.